0: Hello, and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental journalism brought to you by the wonderful team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Ajapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we're going to be covering the Lord's backlash against the government's amendments on nitrate policy, the implications of a legal challenge surrounding that oh so smelly problem of illegal sewage spills, and Hen Harrier recovery in England which is the good news story of the wheat people. For our deep dive, we're going to be looking at food waste policy and fact checking the government's rationale that mandatory food waste reporting would increase food prices. Don't debate, we're going to get there. So without further ado, let's enter the ECO Chamber! Just when you think the row on house building and nitrates is settled, it rears its ugly, nutrient-rich head again. But is it for the last time? To help me better understand this, I'm joined by ENDS editor Jamie Carpenter and ENDS reporter Shosha AD. So, Jamie, what's the latest on nitrates politics?
1: Well, where where do we we start? Um, So... We've obviously talked about this probably a bit too much on the eco chamber. Never. Never too much. Never too much. Um people love it. Or some I people love it. some people love it, some people hate it, which is a problem. I've so, been
0: away, so fill me in.
1: <laughs> fill you in. Okay. So basically there's been this big row about nutrient neutrality. The the government has sought to amend the levelling up and regeneration bill basically to scrap the, the rules. Um so through-
0: that's department Michael Gove's department. Yeah, Fishing the this bill.
1: Leveling Up Department. Yeah, exactly. So, so this, this this was to be done through a very very late amendment to the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, um, which sort of sparked a whole load of controversy and outrage from green groups, main, mainly around the fact that, or partly around the fact that it, it kind of they they said it represented a uh, an example of regression in environmental law, despite all the government's promises about not backsliding on, on that stuff after Brexit. Um, so that all kind of came, came to a head last week in the in the Lords and the government actually was defeated its, its amendment. It was trying to push this through via a series of amendments and they were defeated in the Lords.
0: Okay, so the cha- what were these dramatic changes?
1: Well, there, there are a few amendments. Um, one of them, the, the one that I think kind of, Created the most or sparked the most anger was um, draft laws that would have created a new section in the bill, which would have demanded that councils assume nutrient pollution from new developments will have no impact on protected sites, and also that they ignore any evidence to the contrary, um, which would also which which would be effectively from the government's own agency, Natural England. Um, so that kind of went down like a a lead balloon, um, surprisingly enough. So you see it, you record it, but ignore it. Yes. Is what the government wanted? Yeah. Local authorities. Yeah. So kind of a carve out from the habitats regulations, um, which have a, lot of, um, a lot of people in the environmental sector and green NGOs see as a, a really vitally important safeguard. Um, so this, this really alarmed people. Um, but it's not going to happen, at least for now.
0: How conclusive was that victory? Do we know for the Lords?
1: Well, the the amendment regard the, the amendment we just talked about that that one was defeated, rejected by one hundred ninety two to one hundred sixty one votes. Um, there was also an amendment that that related to these um, Henry the Eighth powers, which
0: Henry the Brexit. Eighth
1: Brexit. Yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't relate to. Michael Gove being able to chop the head off neutral neutrality, but it's <laughs> as much um, as he wish he could. Yeah, exactly. It's more more around basically that the, it means that effectively the government could it has these this discretion to change what change these rules um, without without needing to go through primary legislation. So um, that one was also defeated by two hundred and three two hundred fifty six votes. So and and the kind of I think probably what's more significant than the scale of the defeat is actually the timing of it. So because it was so late in the process, right at the end of the, the, the kind of Lord's stage of the, the passage of the bill through Parliament, it actually means now the government can't go back and amend it again in the Commons. It, it's finished, so it's over. So the, the only way the government can now move this thing is to create a new bill when when Parliament returns after the King's Speech. And given where we are at in the electoral cycle with an election, some people are saying it might be next autumn, it kind of feels now fairly unlikely that this this thing's gonna the government's going to be able to bring bring forward something like this and 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 make it happen before the t- before an election happens
0: so this might be the last time we're talking about nitrates
1: well I think I don't know i mean i think I think the thing is that it's still clearly a problem for people. Um quite how big a problem depends on who you believe about it. So there's there's these numbers being banded about. So the, the government says a hundred thousand homes held up. Um I think House Builders said more homes held up than that, at least they were a while back. When when you actually look at the government's workings, it's more like sixteen and a half thousand homes a year that are held up between now and Twenty thirty. So, so there there is some debate over how how much of a problem this really is. Um, particularly given that the these kind of nutrient mitigation schemes and the nutrient mitigation market is actually kind of growing, and and that there is there are more and more solutions that are available now. So, yeah, are we are we going to stop talking about it? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Unfortunately.
0: Well, on that point, then, what has been the fallout of all this? Do you think?
1: Well. I, th- I think there's there's one one thing I think is interesting is why why did the government actually do this? And I think I think um, Labour MP Clive Betts made a really good point where he basically said, look, you've had you've had loads of opportunities to do this. Like you, you could have done it two years ago. You could have you could have introduced it at the start of the bill process. But you've you've you the government have actually gone and slammed this amendment in right at the very end with no consultation. It's not 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 really acceptable, which I think is a fair point. But um the government seems to now be kind of making these noises around or seeing a quote from Michael Gove saying basically accusing Labour of being blockers and the government being builders. And it kind of it it feels a little bit like this this kind of concept that you hear where this horrible phrase like a wedge issue where the government's trying to kind of create a bit of clear blue water between itself and the Labour Party. And I think if that is the, the case, it's pretty disappointing that they they choose this as a one of those issues because it is actually really a really important issue and, and whether or not you like it or not. And I still see there's some debate where people are arguing still whether or not it does actually represent a regression in law. But nevertheless, the the intention of these rules is to protect our most precious wildlife sites. And there is issues with nutrient pollution. We know about there's big problems with eutroph- eutrophication because of that. So it seems like this this was a, if it was really to create a wedge issue, that's not, I think that's pretty, pretty bad behaviour, really.
0: And it is an interesting wedge because not all the conservative peers actually sided with Michael Gove and the government on this one, did they, Shosha?
2: No, and particularly with the Henry VIII powers, um, conservative peer Lord Deben, who's former chair of the Climate Change Committee, described it as one of the worst pieces of legislation he had ever seen, uh, said it was entirely unconservative and he could hardly believe they were asking local authorities to disregard the facts. Um, He continued, this is the kind of attitude we see in the Republican Party in the United States Um, And this is quoting him, the people who do not believe in climate change, the anti-vaxxers who say, don't look at the facts.
0: Tough words from Lord Deben and a former environment secretary himself. There is also on that idea of it's not conservative, this idea that conservatives are for business. This will or has had an impact on nutrient neutrality, emerging nutrient neutrality markets, isn't it, Jamie?
1: Well, it has, yeah. Um, our colleague Tess has done a lot of um, really good work, sort of uncovering un- un- that and I- exposing that. So you have these because this this issue has now been going on quite a long time. I think uh, is it three or four years ago since the
0: twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen, yeah. So,
1: so so and initially affecting the Solent region, and it's obviously spread elsewhere since then. But but actually the um, the, the the market there depending on who you speak to there there are quite a lot of solutions there are quite a lot of um off site mitigation projects and sites happening so so and the the, the problem with all this uncertainty is that the investors who want to put their or, or were looking to put their money into this these kind of schemes are, are now have have basically got cold feet which is um see not 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 good news
0: some commentators say the issue with housing and the hold up actually has nothing to do with with environmental protections like nutrient neutrality but actually it's the developers holding on to land and it's it's not coming through quick enough can you just talk to our listeners about that
1: yeah well i think i think the basically the what some people have said which is it's a kind of, i think the 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 issue of land banking is quite a um, divisive one in 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 the planning sector. So so you have some some campaigners, countryside campaigners, particularly will, will say, look, you, you've got developers are sitting on hundreds of thousands of of basically unimplemented planning permissions. I think possibly as many as a million um, people in the development sector don't recognise those figures. Um, various reasons development doesn't necessarily come forward that quickly, but in in the context of these numbers we're talking about for nutrient neutrality, then there, there may be a problem there. Um, the, the the I think the probably the big the bigger problem and I think the more the more um the, 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 the thing that is really holding up planning planning approvals and, and new bills starting is is there's just masses of uncertainty over the 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 planning system at the moment. So so um Michael Gove last year that there there was, there was this kind of three hundred thousand home target and I think there was a plan to basically write that into levelling up Bill. There was a massive backbench rebellion and um that was then almost watered down to being an an aspiration. Um there there are local plans are just not being made at the moment by local authorities. That's like a load of uncertainty over kind of where where developers can can bring forward their their sites there's there's issues around the government watering down the five-year housing land supply requirement which basically meant that if you didn't have a local plan in place developers had a fair shot at getting speculative development approved so that that's kind of on its way out um and um there's there's ongoing i mean i, I used to work for planning magazine a long time ago and things don't seem to change very much but the government's just terrified of touching the green belt, which isn't actually an environmental designation. It's it's not about that. Um and it's just terrified of, of going anywhere near it. So for for all those reasons and more
0: Nitrates is the baddie.
1: They're saying that nitrates is the bad nitrates is the baddie and maybe that's convenient, but actually because of other factors, the the actual number of planning approvals and, and housing starts have actually just gone through the floor. So that's not the fault of nutrient neutrality, in my view.
0: On to our next story then, which is that last week, the High Court shut down two high-stakes judicial reviews that have been brought against the government's plans to tackle storm overflows. Now, the loss was still described as a step forward, a mini-win, by one of the claimants, which is the campaign group Wildfish. I'm keen to see how a loss can be a win, bear with. Um, And the other challenge was brought by the Good Law Project with the co-claimants, the Marine Conservation Society, former surfer against sewage boss turned head of Oceana UK, Hugo Tagholm and Richard Hayward's Oysters. So these two cases were held at the same time um, about the government storm overflow discharge reduction plan, which is a mouthful. And I'm here to help me explain it. Uh, I've got Shosha. So Shosha, can you just take me through this plan? And why the campaigners were against it.
2: So the storm overflows plan was published last year in August, and it set out a timeline for water companies to improve their combined sewer overflows, known as storm overflows, um, which are basically outfalls that are designed to act as a release valve when there's um, an issue where the sewerage system might be overwhelmed, such as during flooding, for example. They're meant to only be used in exceptional circumstances, but it's been revealed that they're being used way too often, Uh, and I'm sure everyone's seen the headlines about this. Um, For example, in 2022, in England, storm overflows spilled over 300,000 times, and for 1.7 million hours, the equivalent of 200 years. So as per the plan, companies will have to improve all of their storm overflows discharging into or near designated bathing areas, um, as well as 75% of overflows going into high priority nature sites by 2035 and then fix the rest by 2050. So the timelines though is quite long and that's what's proved controversial. So one of Wildfish's arguments was that the plan failed to take into account that a large proportion of the problem overflows are not complying with the law and that no consideration of the habitats regulations had been made. Um, the other judicial review was brought because the campaigners is good law project argued it failed to take into account coastal waters um a consultation's been launched since then so they dropped this and they still brought the challenge on the basis as to whether the plan met the government's obligations to reduce adverse impacts on the environment so i guess the bulk of it is the storm overflows will still be impacting the environment but there's these really long timelines
0: but court said sorry guys government's right on this one
2: yeah so they said that um the government had the plan was lawful But they did make an important clarification, um, which is what you mentioned at the beginning there, where it was described as a step forward. So Wildfish's lawyer, Guy Lindley-Adams, said the case achieved a great deal because what was clarified, that might seem obvious at first, is that the plan doesn't apply to illegal storm overflows. So that's any storm overflow that's spilling sewage in circumstances that aren't exceptional. In England and Wales, and they have to be fixed under pre-existing statutory and regulatory obligations, and not on the timetables set down by the government in its 2022 plan.
0: So, if it's leaking illegally, water companies, you've still got to sort that out straight away. Not by 2035. Not by 2050. Yes, unless it's an exceptional circumstance justified. And
2: the legislation in question is the Urban Wastewater Treatment Regulations. So the other important distinction is under this law, fixing this can't be paid for by extra increases to consumers' water bills, um, because under the law, water companies must use the best techniques not involving excessive cost to prevent untreated sewage from being released from storm overflows, unless exceptional weather. And that doesn't include dry weather, normal or usual rainfall. So this is particularly interesting in the face of some recent news we covered, um, which is that the Office of Environmental Protection, that green watchdog set up after Brexit, has sent the EA and DAFRA information notices saying they may have possibly broken key points of law relating to this exact legislation, the urban waste one. So Offort was also included in that investigation and they found failures um, with Offort's interpretation of sewage undertaker's duties to deal with sewage um, and make enforcement orders. But yes, this is, it's sort of, you know, they didn't um, win their judicial reviews in the way they wanted to, but important clarifications were made that could be very vital moving forward for the campaigners.
0: What then has DEFRA said in response to this
1: sort of court,
0: their court win. Jamie,
1: yeah, Defra is Defra is. They won. They won that they're, they're in inverted commas. Champagne corks popping, <laughs> Marshall Street. Um, the kind of Defra in the media blog was, I think it was late on Friday. It was uh, posting posting this news. Um, so they they don't they don't mention the uh, the kind of wildfish points in the in in their 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 response to this. That they they said they are. Spokesman said we are very pleased with today's judgment. Um, our plan sets strict targets for water companies to address storm overflows, and the court has highlighted that it goes further than an existing legislation. Um, and then, basically, they're, they're saying that sewage is bad, and we're doing stuff about it. So, um, we are clear that the volume of sewage being discharged into our waters is utterly unacceptable, and water companies need to clean up their act. That's why we are driving forward more investment, stronger regulation, and tougher enforcement. So. Good for Defra, basically.
0: And now on to our final good news story, that hen harriers are back and up in England. Shosha, why are we celebrating hen harriers this week?
2: So Natural England said um, last Friday that the population of hen harriers in England has risen for the seventh year in a row um, after 141 chicks were successfully fledged, which is a 20% increase on last year when 119 ticks were recorded. So um, they also reported the number of nests has gone up um, to 54 from 49 last year. Of these, 36 fledged successfully. Um, and according to the watchdog, there's now more hen harriers in this country than there have been for the past 200 years.
0: It's amazing. I think, you know, I think because the hen harrier is such a sort of an iconic conservation species. it's I think it's awesome. Um where are the hotspots then, Jamie, for hen harriers, if I want to get out and try and spot one?
1: Well, you have to get up to Northumberland. That's the place. That's the place to be. They've got the, the highest number of nesting attempts, um, so 17 in total and the highest increase on the previous year when there were nine nests recorded there. That's um, a big jump. Big jump. Yeah, you can also go over to the Yorkshire Dales and Nidderdale, um, also a stronghold with 15 nests in 2023.
0: And this is great news Nidderdale is ringing alarm bells, and but because because this news does have to be tempered slightly, doesn't it, Shosha?
2: Yes. So um, Hen Harry is still full victim to persecution, illegal persecution, and um, there are a disproportionate number that are going missing over grouse moors, um, because on these grouse moors, obviously, um, gamekeepers are keen to protect grouse and hen harriers um, can predate on the game species. So Natural England's chair, Tony Juniper, said um, they know that more needs to be done. um, And he said, quotes, they remain absolutely committed to working with their partners to stamp out the despicable killing of these wonderful creatures that bring so much joy to so many people.
0: And, you know, there have been some rogue gamekeepers, you know, prosecuted successfully for for some of these horrific crimes um, against you know what is such a beautiful bird I mean the males not you guys have seen them that sort of bluey sort of gray coloring and the way they sort of the sky dancer label if you ever see the males the why the why they're called the sky dancers because they sort of try to attract their mates in the spring and do these amazing no one can see this but i'm kind That's of publicists can't face. see the hand i can't gestures. see the hand gestures and everything i'm doing here in my seat <laughs> i'm doing a male sky dance um it is an amazing raptor but whenever we talk about hen harriers i feel like with environmental policy we can't not mention natural england's brood management trial which is part of this story as well isn't it Jamie
1: yeah so um so so this this brood management trial is, is, is part of conservation efforts to bolster hen harrier numbers. Um Natural England says that twenty-four chicks of this year's group were taken from six nests on grouse moors, um, and they were they were reared and then released as part of this brood management trial. Um so basically this scheme involves taking chicks from nests on grouse moors, rearing them in captivity, and then once they've fledged, they're released back to the same areas of uplands that they were they were taken from. Um Natural England says that, that that program is going to be extended so that it can better understand if it actually actually works. So does does it reduce conflict with game shooting and at the same time allow hen harry populations to recover? So I guess we'll we'll kind of watch the space on on that.
0: It's time now for our moment of the week, where I'm going to selfishly hijack it and make it all about a recent film we've put out called The Business of Wildflowers uh, with conservation manager Jake Fines at the Holcomb Estate, aka the King of Hedgerows. Some know him by. If you are an end subscriber, you can go to our website. You'll see it on the homepage. You can type in wildflowers. You'll find it. Um, Jamie, why should people go to watch the video?
1: It's a good film, I think. Is um, <laughs> it's all you need to say? It's, all,
0: well, it's a yeah. great film. It's, it's a, good a good film. film. No, it's yeah, it's, 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 it's a, great. Did you say good?
1: It's a good film. It's no, I'd, I'd say more, more than good. It is. I think it's, it is great. I mean, it's it's a it's a kind of. I suppose I it's heard saying, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah, I I heard that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's um it's a bit of a new new thing for us because we we have done a couple of documentaries before, but this this is more of a um a practical kind of case study led um film so um a different different kind of different kind of feel but um so i hope that people can actually take away some practical learnings from it um i think also it just it looks really nice it's really well shot and interesting interesting thing for people who might have just more of a general interest in it um yeah so definitely definitely give it give it a give it a look so kind of
0: primarily for the landowners the conservationists interested in kind of seeing how wildflowers can sort of be grown and and how actually how you can make money out of them. Joshua sure why why should our listeners or subscribers watch the film?
2: I think it's great because we always talk about these policies and you know when they're in construction as well so it was great to sort of see how it's playing out and like a success story as well and that was great to see. Um I really enjoyed hearing about how um, sheep grazing was being used to boost orchid numbers. Mm. I thought that was great. Um, I think within three years, he boosted the numbers from a couple hundred to thousands. thousands.
0: And that's interesting because if when you watch the film, you'll see how Jake had to do that. He had to literally fight conventional wisdom with regulators. And he takes us through how he did that. And yeah, and then he's got this incredible 15 hectare wildflower meadow, which, you know, you'll learn all about how you can grow your own one if you go watch the film. Flower power. Flower power. Can we talk
1: about soils as well?
0: And soils. 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 We've got soils. We've got everything in there. I love the
1: soils bit. That was was my favourite bit.
0: Time for our deep dive as we look at the latest on food waste and the chance to introduce mandatory reporting, which has spooked the government. But not campaigners who are set to take legal action against DEFRA because they claim that the government isn't following the evidence in front of them. Now, to help me understand this riddle and the opportunities that have been wasted, I'm joined by Ends Reports News editor Pippa Neal. Now, let's just establish the problem here, Pippa. When we talk about food waste in the UK, what's the, what sort of quantity are we talking here?
3: Mm. So it's a pretty massive issue. Um, according to DEFRA, the UK currently produces 9.5 million tonnes of food waste every single year. Um, that's post-farmgate, meaning the figure excludes food waste arising from primary production. Um, and businesses alone are responsible for over 2.9 million tonnes of this waste. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of huge quantities that I think it's pretty impossible to even imagine what that what that looks like. Um, But this, you know, has as well as being kind of extremely wasteful, you know, this could be eaten by people. It also has a huge cost. So it's estimated to all this food waste is estimated to cost 19 billion pounds a year and has associated emissions of 36 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent.
0: I mean, those numbers are staggering in and of itself. And when I sort of first looked at it, I thought, no, I'm not going to eat food waste. But actually, according to the statistics, you know, 70% or so is has been identified as edible. Mm. So it is, we are just chucking this stuff away.
3: Yeah. According to RAP, the, which is the um, charity Waste and Resources Action Programme, like 6.4 million tonnes of this could have been eaten. And that's equivalent to over 15 billion meals was it,
0: oh, massive. Mm-hmm. But the government did put forward a plan or some proposals to try and get that number down in England, didn't they? Mm-hmm. So in
3: 2022, as part of the government's food strategy, DEFRA launched a consultation on proposals to make food waste reporting mandatory for large businesses. Um, but in the government's response to that consultation, which was published last month, it said that despite ninety nine percent of respondents being in favor of mandatory food waste reporting, it was not taking this policy forward.
0: So just just as a point of order then, what what defines a large business in this case?
3: So it's a business with more than two hundred and fifty employees.
0: All right, okay. so they said, let's make food reporting for these big companies mandatory. Respondents said that's a great idea, 99% of them. But then the government backtracked because they said, Oh, there's too much of a cost to or there could be a cost for the consumer, is that right?
3: Yeah, so so in their reasoning for deciding not to take this policy forward, they said the government said that a regulatory approach is not suitable at this time, especially when additional costs may be passed on to consumers. Um, And it specifically stated that the government is sensitive to the overall burden of regulation and is seeking to avoid measures that would drive inflation while the cost of living crisis remains a challenge to many consumers. Um, But this is quite an interesting point, because in the consultation about a line above that, it states that it states very explicitly that food waste is a financial and environmental burden. Um, And then basically straight after that, it says, but we're not doing this because it could increase costs to consumers. Um, And this is, you know, quoting directly from the government's consultation response. It says, unnecessary food waste is inefficient, pushing up the price of food for consumers and businesses. Reducing food waste can help businesses cut costs and identify food that could be redistributed to the most vulnerable.
0: But there's got to be a cost somewhere, no? Have they done any evaluations on what it would mean for a large business if they put this mandatory reporting through?
3: So in the impact assessment that was published alongside the 2022 consultation, DEFRA actually said that large businesses would only have to prevent 0.25% of the food waste they create each year to offset the cost of the regulation. And they it also said that evidence suggests that a £1 investment by businesses would yield a £14 return. Um, but there are some costs, obviously. So the impact assessment did highlight that there would be a cost to the environment agency specifically. Um, it estimated that there would be the like the IT, the, like the setup of the IT would cost the regulator £720,000 in 2022 and 2023, and that the regulation enforcement costs could be £100,000 in 2024-25. However, the document did state that by aligning the regulation with the Polluter Pays Principle, the Environment Agency could implement a charging scheme which would require businesses in scope to pay an annual fee when registering their permit exemption.
0: Okay, so the government's saying we can't pass this cost on to the consumer. Their own impacts cost saying that actually uh, that won't happen because right now we're driving up food inflation anyway with the wastage and businesses can actually make efficiencies By mandatory reporting, that has then led to this legal challenge. Is that correct?
3: So not quite, but basically, feedback who are a charity, they've launched. um, So they've sent a pre-action protocol letter to the environment secretary, which signals the start of a judicial review process. And they, while they were in quotes, dismayed that the government, you know, decided not to introduce mandatory food waste reporting the reason that they have launched this legal action is actually the way that the government responded to the consultation so as i mentioned before 99% of respondents were in favor of mandatory food waste reporting but the government kind of seems to have ignored that and decided despite the evidence that they wouldn't be taking this policy forward um so according to a statement by the group it's it's yeah it's challenging the legality of this consultation on the, on the grounds that it's not based on reasonable or rational view of the evidence it has received, um, and they also added that the decision is also based on an inadequate impact assessment, ignoring advice from the government's own experts, the climate change committee, and failing to take into to account the emission savings that would result from food waste reporting.
0: Because this is as much of a climate issue as it is a nutrition issue. Um, and that number again—that the that RAP anticipates the the emissions that would be saved if we were to to sort out our food waste problem.
3: Yeah, So RAP have estimated that food waste is responsible for thirty six million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent each year.
0: That's a big number. What have Defra said about this potential challenge?
3: So when Ends contacted them on the day that this um, the legal challenge was announced. A DEFRA spokesperson said that they haven't yet received the formal letter, so couldn't comment on the legal matters. But they did kind of reiterate their view that a regulatory approach would increase costs for businesses and the public sector, which might then be passed on to consumers. And so they said, we therefore believe the right approach at this time is to enhance the existing voluntary approach to food waste reporting. Um, And they said, we've seen progress with with, with this voluntary approach with 221 businesses measuring and reporting food waste in 2022. And they said they'll work with businesses to encourage um, even more to sign up. Um, yeah, so that's that's their plan.
0: 220 odd does seem like a small number. Have you spoken to any industry professionals about their take on DEFRA's kind of back down?
3: Yeah, so, so speaking about kind of the decision not to take this policy forward... Um, Libby Peak, who's the head of resource policy at Green Alliance, she said, you know, the government is claiming that they can get a lot of information from this voluntary approach. But she said, we've had voluntary reporting schemes for decades now, and we still don't know how much food is wasted throughout supply chains. She said, if we if we don't act now, we're all going to pay the price in the long run. And she said the government needs to be throwing everything it can at the climate crisis. And that includes introducing mandatory food waste reporting.
0: And that's it. On today's episode, I've learned that the Lords aren't backing down on nitrates, but the issue will undoubtedly resurface at the start of the next parliamentary session. I now know that a win is a win on sewage pollution, even if it's a loss in the courts, that hen harriers are soaring high, according to latest Natural England numbers, and DEFRA may yet be served up in the courts over its decision not to act on a mandatory food waste policy. My thanks to Shosha Ad, Jamie Carpenter, and Pippa Neal for coming onto this week's episode of the Eco Chamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.